Welcome back, friends, fellow philosophers, and authors to this Wild Isle writing cast. I have with me Fallon Clark of Fallon Edits. Uh, how are you doing, Fallon? I'm doing well today, Marquise. How are you? I'm I'm doing quite well. I'm excited about this uh, particular discussion, particularly with you. Uh, I don't get to have uh, these types of talks with professionals all that often. There are a lot of uh, very skilled amateur authors, but um, you have a lot of experience in the field. And I'm really excited to get your take on things. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about theme in relation to fiction. I'm calling this episode Delving into the Depths, so it'll be quite a lot of fun. But before we begin, uh, I'm going to direct all of you over to uh, my website where you can find more of these podcasts at wildislelit.com. Um, I've got the whole list. I think we're 20, I think this will be episode 24 or 5, if I've counted correctly. So there's tons of material. There aren't just the writing cast. I also have my general Wild Isle podcast where I talk about all manner of things. So go over there and have some fun while you're there. Um, if you have a manuscript, there's two different places you can go. Uh, Fallon, I'll give her a chance to to pitch her uh, story guide and coaching service, but I have the Wild Isle style guide. Um, my focus here uh, with the style guide is to help authors refine their style to both ref uh, reflect Let's say I would I would describe them as lost skills from both the pulp area and the classics that we don't really see in modernity anymore. So, uh, if you wish to polish your manuscript with the, I don't want to say the power of pulp. I was trying to do an alliteration with P there on the fly. Head over to the Wild Isle Style Guide at wildislelit.com, and while you're there, uh, you could also check out my novel. Wan Smoke Broken. It's a weird fantasy fiction novel that reads somewhere between like a Western and a literary novel. Um, it's it's fun. It's a nice episodic adventure. Uh, if that interests you, you can listen or read, uh, listen to or read the first chapter for free. Again, at wildislelit.com. All right, I'm done shilling my stuff. Fallon, uh, where can we send people to check out your stuff and your services? Um, I'm in a few spaces, Marquis. Um, my I go by Fallon Clark. My website is FallonEdits.com. I'm a story development coach and editor. I'm also on LinkedIn. Uh, so I do post, I try to post a lot of content that just delivers value and helps people on a self-editing journey when they can't afford to pay for professional services. So if you need resources and want something to guide your self-editing process or something to guide the story writing process, uh, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn and grab uh, any of the PDF resources uh, I put out on, you know, I try to do something at least on a weekly basis, if not more frequently, just to continuously provide value where I can. Yeah, please do check out uh, Fallon's content. And um, again, if you're looking for uh, a, it was a story coach, that's what, that's the, the proper term. Yeah, so I focus on developmental editing. So whether you are start, you know, have an idea for a story and need help sort of fleshing out all of the nuance and details in order to jumpstart the writing or whether you have a finished first draft and you're looking for a one-on-one sort of close developmental edit 
in a coaching capacity, um, I'm the person to help you with that. I don't look at manuscripts and provide redline commentary. I'm not going to mess up the words. I want to have a conversation about the story development, um, about what's happening in the story so that an author can take that feedback and implant it in their own writing. That way, the story is always 100% the author's and my hands haven't really been on it. Um, so it's kind of this beauty of collaboration happening uh, in, in a conversation space. Yeah, and, and you'd be, well, maybe the listeners won't be surprised. That's actually a really great service. Um, it's very difficult to do editing of any kind or coaching of any kind without having, uh, let's say, too much of, uh, I don't want to say an influence, because you want to have an influence, but uh, mm-hmm. let's say to to bring out what the author is trying to put down. I guess I'll say it that way. All right, let's go ahead and move into today's conversation, which is theme. Um, Now, as I like to present myself as a philosopher, I always start with definition so that everyone, uh, me, you, and the listeners are all on the same page. So Fallon, when we're talking about fiction, um, and I use the word theme, what what does that mean to you? So for a theme, I separate theme from the major message of a story. Um, so I'll talk about theme first. Uh, when I when we talk about theme, I'm really talking about the topics or subject matter that the story fits into. And themes are something that's very personal for each reader. Sometimes authors don't even realize the themes that they've implanted into their fiction novels, especially if they haven't worked with a developmental editor to really pull those themes out and refine them. But readers pick them up on their own. Uh, And it's an interesting process because the same novel can have different themes for different readers depending on their perspective and sort of the constants in their life as they go into a piece of reading material. Themes are not something you're ever going to find usually stated in plain words. Um, Themes usually come from a character who's not your main character, but it's they're always going to describe the general topics that the fiction novel sort of fits into, whether it's family and romance, or there are, you know, themes of deception uh, or collusion, um, you know, nature, you know, man versus self. There's there's a whole bunch of themes and it's all topic specific. Okay, so we've got the general subject, the general idea, the general topic, uh, usually communicated in a recurring fashion. Um, I'm going to ask a, a follow for a follow-up question definition um, for a different literary. Um, I, I hesitate to call it device element is probably the right word, um, and that is motif. Um, so we, we've just outlined theme, but I. I want to ask about motifs and what you think about a motif, and then we'll, we'll we're going to compare and contrast those here in a bit. But yeah, so we've got theme, that general uh, subject, general idea. What's the motif then? Sure. Uh, for me, the story's motif is really the soul of the fiction novel, right? It's the it's the one message that the author is attempting to communicate to readers. So packing in all of those themes, what is the one takeaway that you want your readers to have? It's the underlying idea uh, that you deliver. Can be, you know, if your story is about um, 
you know, sort of family and, you know, family dynamics and things. Uh, maybe the motif is that, you know, it's important to break free from your family in order to realize your true self. Um, so there there are ways that themes sort of fit into motif and mean motif absolutely informs the themes of a story, but they are, I see them as two very different things. Um, yeah, so motif would be sort of the message or the lesson behind the novel. Okay, so uh, what's really interesting here, uh, I think we both look at theme and motif very differently. Um, I actually look at it, it, it they, the definitions are roughly the same, but inverted. So typically I end up using the word motif in the way that you use theme and theme and use the motif. Um, however, I have a multitude of um, literary textbooks um, from when I was teaching in university. And mm -hmm. they don't do a very good job, um, any of them, of hammering out theme and motif from one another. Um, and they use them in back and forth ways. So I think this is probably sure. actually a really good conversation to have because I do think... Um, you know, regardless of whether we use the words theme or the way, whether we use the words motif for the definitions that you just gave, because I actually have those same definitions here sure. right in my notes, just applied on the other words. So um, we're going to be, you know, for whatever words you choose to use out there, listeners, um, don't focus on the word, focus on the definition, the, you know, the, the concept that that word is defining. Um, if I if I would go in and throw my definitions for these things, I mentioned they were flipped. Mm -hmm. um, I like to go to the etymology of a lot of words, um, and sure. I did this particularly when I, yeah when I particularly started teaching. Um, I, I would pull you know go to make a PowerPoint and then go in and I have this like big thick etymology dictionary, and of course you could just go online and do the same thing. It's much quicker. But uh, when I looked at the word theme. Um, I noticed it came from both, I think, both the Greek and the Latin roots actually come from the word thesis, right? Um, yes. And this was something that was really relevant to me because I taught uh, not only literature courses, but composition courses. Mm -hmm. And um, that defini definition you gave for motif really fits onto essentially um, a thesis, right? It is, you mentioned like the the message, right? Uh, or the lesson. Another way sure. to describe that might be like the moral of the story. Um, that, of course, uh, begs the question, well, what exactly is the, the moral of the story? And would you say that it's fair that the the lesson, the message, the moral of the story is a kind of argument? Would you say that's fair to say? I think it is. Uh, absolutely. It's the, you know, it's the major idea that the author is communicating to the audience, right? The 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 raison d'etre for the the piece as a whole. Um, there's almost no fiction author I've spoken to who wrote their novel in a vacuum and doesn't want readers to take away some greater meaning from that. Yeah, and that that opens up a whole can of questions that I know that the mm -hmm. listeners are wondering, right? So, okay, so we've got this kind of central thesis, right? It's in the it's in the uh, it's in the narrative. But the questions, the, this is the question I get asked the most: is what if the reader gets a different message than what is intended? 
which is, a, I guess, is kind of like a death of the author question, right? Like, so is yeah. the is the central message, is the central argument, the claim? I like to use the word truth or phrase, truth claim for this. Um, is it contingent upon purely the text? Is it contingent upon the reader's relationship with the text? Is it contingent upon the author uh, and what the author intended? Um, how do you how do you understand uh, that central thesis, what I might call a theme, what you've outlined as a motif? Sure. So it's very interesting. Um, a lot of where that theme comes from or where the motif comes from in, in the context uh, is in the language that the author chooses to use to write the story. But from the language, the author's voice, if it doesn't come through in the words on the page, the author's intention will get lost. And readers are then tasked with finding, you know, the meaning for themselves, uh, you know, which is why, you know, some stories resonate very well with some readers and and don't with others. Um a, a big one, I think, in, in pop culture that shows up as p- potentially a contentious novel for, for some is Atlas Shrugged. You know, if you're a person who is enticed by the idea of rugged individualism and what it means uh, to, to, you know, to pull yourself up, to create a sufficient life for yourself, uh, you may be interested in the in the themes of that of that novel. Um, but if you're someone who is not necessarily interested in self-sufficiency, if if that if that level of objectivity doesn't suit you well, you may look for other themes in that novel to sort of describe your reading experience. And you may pull on, you know, you know, the history and, and power of, you know, tech, technological advancement, for example, rather than um, sort of the individuality, it, it, you know, backed in the theme. So it really depends on both, I'd say. It's really the words and it's the reader's perception of those words through the reading process. And I think the author's intention is almost nullified once the book is in the reader's hands, because at that point, it's up to the reader to take that story and to sort of absorb it in any way that seems authentic to the reader themselves. Yeah, I like that. Authentic to the reader themselves, right? So what that uh, suggests is that uh the the author's intent may find its way into the book uh it also may not and in fact it that also suggests it's possible that the reverse of what the author intended um can be picked up by the the readers or the listeners um there is a uh, a book that was made into a um i guess we'd call it like a cult classic film uh starship troopers by heinlein and uh, what's the reason why I bring that one that book up is because the it has a similar um, what I would call theme what you, you've outlined as, as motif a, a similar thesis we'll say to to, to bridge that gap um, to Atlas shrugged uh, the uh, say philosophical backgrounds of the authors are somewhat somewhat similar but when that uh, when that book was made into a film the director. Um, or perhaps it was the the writer for the film. Um, I guess it would be the director, right? Because they have a book to go off of. Um, did not actually understand, <laughs> had not read the book and did not understand it, but had a an inverted perception of the thing that he hadn't read. Yet, this is where it's really interesting. Yet when the film uh, came about, the thesis of the film was actually the same as in the book, despite the uh, director's attempt 
to produce something that he thought was the reverse of that, right? So in this case, we have the author, um, his intention not being picked up by a director whose intention was also not embedded into the film and therefore was not picked up by his audience. Which really suggests that um, there is something that is in the text itself that mm -hmm. interacts more directly with the reader. Um, now, Fallon, what you know, the question that gets brought up immediately in my mind is, is the is the thesis, if we will, is that would say there in the text itself, or is it only there as it emerges? from the interpretation of the reader and then that begs a second question if it is the interpretation of the reader um is the is does that make the thesis of a work subject to that reader or is it possible that readers can misread like is it is it a, is it objectively there in the text or is it a matter of the subjectivity of the readers i guess is what i'm asking I think it can be both. Um, in in the storytelling process or the, the foundational steps of constructing a good story from beginning, middle, and end uh, really lies the foundations of theme, right? So somewhere usually in act one, to take the three-act structure and sort of expand it, you're going to find both in fiction novels and in films that usually someone other than your main character is going to state the theme in some fashion. Um, it may be a quick line of dialogue. It, you know, may be a greater musing, something that the, uh, you know, the main character comes, you know, becomes aware of in some fashion. So readers are going to get a sense of the theme from the text on the page. There is an objective sort of implanting of theme in sort of the natural storytelling process. But beyond that foundational sort of underpinning of theme is the, the sort of layer of reader subjectivity on top of that. Okay, so there, there, there is an object, um, whether which is like with the theme that is present there in the mm -hmm. story, but then we've got, um, let's say, uh, interpretive structure. I would, you know, to, to make a... Uh, crude, not, I guess not crude, but I'll use the word crude comparison, you know, one may or may not see that the, the door that is normally opened is closed. Um, and you can't say that the person saw that the door is closed, but they, but the door is closed. And so they will still run into it if they try to walk through it, um, which is a way of saying that, yes, it is there in the text, uh, mm -hmm. but no, that doesn't mean that the reader will see it or that the reader won't see it for something else. Um, I want to ask a question about the reasons for the, um, the the theme or the thesis of a work of fiction being essentially out of the hands of the protagonist, uh, because that, I think that's an interesting point that you brought up multiple mm -hmm. times now, so that it definitely has some significance. Would you be willing to elaborate that a little bit? Or on that, yeah, bit. sure. Um, so usually, the th the one you know, the the major thread, the major thesis of the story is something that the protagonist ends up learning for themselves. Um, it's part of the life lesson, and the way that the protagonist learns that lesson takes on various shapes, and and it's probably not going to be obvious. You know, that's that learning process is transformative. It's part of the character arc and the development journey uh, for the character. Uh, but that theme is sort, you know, it it is 
part of the underlying structure. Um, the the reason that the main character usually does not land on the theme themselves is because the theme is something they have to learn over the course of the novel. If they state it up front in act one, the learning is done. They already know that truth. They know that lesson. And then it's just, you know, sort of headbanging to figure out why they haven't actually adopted a practice to, you know, to get that into their lives. Um, over the course of a work, the, you know, the protagonist is going to move through, you know, from that initial glimpse of the theme in in the early part of the story they're going to go through you know their you know the 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 transformation process both in terms of plot and in the internal and external journey of that character and they're usually going to get to the understanding of what that theme means right near the end of act two before you get to the big finale so they have that that sort of aha moment where they either reflect on something the character, you know, another character said in the beginning of the story, or they finally come up to speed to be able to understand on some level what that other character was talking about. Um, and they get sort of uh, in in that space, the the character is going to learn what that theme actually is, be able to make the necessary changes to complete their character arc, then they're going to go through the that finale process. Um, so it's, you know, it's because it's part of the protagonist's overall character development journey, it's generally not the protagonist who's going to state that theme on their own. Yeah, it, this really, the fact that the protagonist... Um... You know, the, and for those of you out there listening um, who may not have the academic, uh, I don't want to say training, education is probably the right word, to uh, understand all of the, let's say, the meanings loaded into the terms. Protagonist doesn't just mean main character. I see that used mm-hmm. uh, yes. among among the lay people quite a lot. But like really what protagonist means is um, the character with which the reader is meant to sympathize uh, and empathize with. Um, and the reason why I think is connected to what you've just highlighted that, um, to use an Aristotelian way of thinking about it, the telos of fiction very well may be to convey that theme, to convey that thesis. And why might I say that? Well, if we are meant to sympathize and empathize with the protagonist, and if the protagonist is meant to go through some small or large amount of self-transformation in order to overcome the conflict, right? Um, and that's delving into what I would say is an inevitable plot structure. I separate that mm-hmm. from plot types because there's different ways to to have this structure present itself. But fundamentally, uh, I think that three-act structure, structure uh, you know, Freytag's triangle, and the if we're talking about it in terms of theater and drama, I think that's an inevitability. I'll ask you about that here in a moment. Uh, we'll see if, if that holds water, my claim there. But to say the telos or the purpose, or I like to use the word function, because I, I try mm-hmm. to, if I can, strip out as much subjectivity and, and speak as objectively as I can about uh, sure. these things. The telos is for the reader. Uh, and tell me if you think this is right, so I can actually open this up, up for you to, to comment on afterwards. I think that the... Tell me if you think that the function, the purpose of a story is to teach, if you will, the reader the same lessons that the protagonist learns in order to 
overcome an analogous conflict in his or her own life. Is that does that sound reasonable or am I am I stretching there? No, I, I think you're you're spot on. I mean that then that's sort of the mark of a good work of fiction, right? And uh, you know, of course there are fiction novels that are pretty, pretty strictly plot and may not have, you know, sort of an advanced themes. Um, but in most fiction novels, the ones that 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 readers really tend to sort of bond with and have an emotional connection with, they're they're seeing those themes take shape as they read. Um, and they're learning the lesson with the with the protagonist or with the main character, depending on how how the you know those character devices are used and how that shakes out. Um, they're going to learn that lesson and be able to modify it for their own circumstances, right? Um, for you know. Uh, the the kite runner is one that that comes to mind right so readers are reading about this child amir who you know has witnessed something very horrible um who doesn't feel like he can talk about you know what what has happened um and you know gets in the in the beginning of the story you know overhears his father uh talking about uh you know another dad being disappointed in their child and and you know and hears that you know a, a boy who won't stand up for himself you know becomes a man who who can't stand up for anything um and I'm paraphrasing here I don't have the book in front of me, but um, as as readers go through that story, they're going to see Amir go through, you know, sort of the status quo life before, you know, his, his sort of big transformation as being a boy who can't stand up for himself. You know, a quiet child who refuses to speak and refuses to interact when there's a risky situation. Um, and it's not until readers get close to the end where Amir has had this sort of transformative moment where, you know, people have been executed. Um, the Amir's, you know, being pushed to go back home, um, you know, get, get this other child from the orphanage. You know, there's, there's all of this stuff going on in his life. It feels very big, very heavy for child. And it's, it's at a moment where, you know, um, Amir is reminded of the theme and, and he, he wonders if he's become, you know, someone who can't stand up for anything. And that's the moment where he he is able to transform, to reflect on what that means for him, reflect on the person that he wants to be, to look back on, you know, what he's done up to this point and make critical changes to be someone who can stand up for himself and for others. And I think that, you know, that story in, in particular and, and others, um, you know, they're, they're going to be the kind of stories that encourage readers to stand up for themselves. You you know, even if it's not in the same way that Amir does it, you know, you, readers can adopt that message into their own lives to say, okay, well, you know, Amir had this this horrible set of circumstances happen to him, and yet he was able to see something bigger in himself. He was able to transform and do good for himself, and I can do that too. Um, and so that sort of that's that's where the subjectivity of the reader's experience really comes in, is sort of taking that lesson in the novel format, in the fictional setting, and being able to transform that into something that's applicable in the real world. Yeah, th that opens up a question, right? So if, and, and perhaps... Uh, there's there's two questions that are fighting in my mind. Which one should come first? I'll stick with the first one that came to mind. Um, is mm -hmm. if this is the case, right? Like, say, you know, we're both authors, we're both writing novels. Um, mm -hmm. Let's assume that there's going to be some theme. There's going to be some claim, some lesson in there. Why why do it in 
fiction, right? Because there, there's a question there. Would it, uh, someone might ask, wouldn't it be clear just to, I don't know, write a thesis out in an essay, right? Rather than to um, embed it into a work of fiction where reader interpretation um, could very possibly, you know, spoil that message. Why, why fiction? Why are we doing this? I love this question. <laughs> <laughs> I love this question so much. Um, so fiction novels in particular, are it, we're, it's not just made up stories, right? A good fiction novel is a, a microcosm of reality. You know, it sort of takes a situation and puts it into a storytelling format for a broad audience using a ton of different devices. Um, and you can adapt fiction to almost anything. Uh, narrative nonfiction and essays about, you know, you know, let's take take a, a mirror's lesson, you know, so you stick up for yourself, become a, a person who sticks up for themselves. That's a really great thing to essay about. Um, but is an essay going to persuade somebody to make the necessary change in their lives to drive forward that action? Maybe, but maybe not. Um, humans are hardwired for storytelling. It comes from our pre- pre-written language oral traditions. We know stories uh, in a big way. Um, and and you know, sort of the oral history and, and sort of uh, things have been passed down for generations and generations. And so we have this natural tendency to gravitate toward story, not just narrative, but actual storytelling. And so when you, when you can use a fiction story to communicate something in the real world on a deeper level, I think it has great capacity to reach far more people than narrative nonfiction ever could. Um, there are some people who are just never going to be interested in reading uh, nonfiction. They're not going to be interested in um, in essays, in self-help, in, um, you know, even in memoir, you know, on some level, uh, depending on who the, who the, the memoirist is and, and what their life experience was. But Lots and lots of people read fiction and they read fiction a probably a little bit for some escapism, but also to learn something about the world and about themselves through the medium of fiction and through storytelling. Um, it's actually why I focus on fiction editing at large, uh, because there I, th I think there's there's something so beautiful in the power of a fiction story to communicate what is, you know, otherwise could be really intense topics to talk about in a nonfiction way. You know, um, I think about bit, you know, dystopian stories, um, you know, speculative fiction, horror novels that, you know, talk about sort of the fall of man and, you know, moral decline and discipline. And you, we can rave all day long about, you know, moral decline and, you know, and shake a fist at, at all of the stuff that's going on. But isn't it more powerful to hear or to sort of understand what that means by reading it in a story that we can, we can sort of connect with, you know, a, a protagonist that we can root for, uh, you know, a, a plot line that we're excited by, um, and a finish to a story that satisfies on it, on a sort of the deepest level. I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, a bunch of thoughts populated in my mind as I was listening to you. Are you familiar with Jonathan Haidt and his, um, he's got a number of works, but uh, his book, The Righteous Mind by Chance? Uh, I don't believe I'm familiar with that one. Okay, so I think he actually took this from somebody else, but he talks about human beings as being like an elephant rider, as opposed to, uh, I think it was Plato, 
who talked about uh, human beings being like a charioteer. And the reason why he preferred the elephant rider to the charioteer is that a charioteer has a fair amount of control over the horses and where the chariot goes. And Plato was, you know, he was thinking in terms of, well, where this rational, uh, well, not quite rational animal. That's more Aristotle, who's more reasonable than Plato, to be frank. Sure. But he, he felt that, yeah, he felt that our logical sense of ourselves and our ego, um, he wouldn't have used that word, but had a lot of control. But if you think of an elephant rider, which I think is much more akin to how a human being is, we have this, you know, this ego, this consciousness, this uh, capacity for rationality, but it's like a little dude sitting on top of this whole creature. And when push comes to shove, if you're riding an elephant and the elephant wants to go left, you can try, <laughs> you can try to convince it to go right. But um, if it decides to do that, that's the way it's going to go. Mm -hmm. uh, and if I, you know, take that metaphor and break it down, that is, I think, most of our human selves, right? We, you know, I think this is perhaps a post-enlightenment problem um, where we assume ourselves to be entirely the rational creature. We assume that which we're consciously aware of and consciously accept is that which we believe. But I think really... It's not the case. If it was the case, we would see the exact opposite of what you laid out, right? People would be convinced and persuaded by and interested in reading um, nonfiction, and particularly non-narrative nonfiction, mm -hmm. which is not the case, right? Like even yeah. even amongst the best um, nonfiction writers, right? They they utilize mm -hmm. stories in their books. I mentioned Jonathan Haidt. He does it. Um, mm -hmm. I've got a couple books by uh, the listeners. I know I'm a big fan of Jordan Peterson. He just tells stories like over and over and yes. over again. That's like that's most of his books, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so people are are obviously not, let's say, compelled and moved by that pure rational part of their brain. You can almost never get anyone to willingly subject themselves to. Um, you know, reading raw philosophy, but you can get someone to read a story. And th this is what I think. The cool thing is someone doesn't actually have to know they learned something to learn something from a story, right? The yes. Theme, yeah, the theme operates, that's my proposition. Uh, the theme operates at the unconscious level, which means you adapt it into you, whether you're aware or not. You, you think that's fair? I do. I do. It's actually something we talk about at home. Uh, I have a young daughter and uh, I make it, I make an intentional practice of reading novels in front of her so that she can see, you know, what reading can do. And we, and she gets a hall pass. I mean, I don't care how late she stays up if she's reading. Um, she's been a kid who from a year and a half old has had books available to her even at bedtime because of the power of reading. There's never a wrong time to read and there's never like sort of a bad outcome from reading a novel. You're always going to learn something, whether it's command of language, uh, arrangement of ideas, whether it's learning how to sort of pick out and adopt those powerful lessons. Uh, there's never a, there's never a bad way to read or, or a, you know, a bad time to do it, I suppose. 
well, here's here's a bit of a, a fun contradiction. I don't know if this is correct. Uh, so I had a conversation uh, with a, a fellow friend and acquaintance. Uh, I call him Captain all the time. His name's Michael. Uh, we were talking about the influences on new writers from uh, particularly uh, the mediums of uh, anime and manga. We, we're not. I'm not going to ask specific questions about that. But one of the contentions that we came up with was that actually, it is possible. Um, for someone to be, we posited that it's possible for someone to be negatively influenced. And we just mentioned the uh, the very great, uh, and I think it's a invaluable capacity to teach someone through narrative. Uh, is it, it would it be fair then to say it's actually also uh, a potentially dangerous tool as it is useful because it operates underneath the level of, let's say, uh, any form of rational scrutiny. Could someone be, uh, let's say, fooled or tricked or manipulated into believing some, like learning a lesson that does not correspond to the real world? Is that? Do you think that's possible? I, I suppose it could be possible. Um, you know, I, I think about, you know, The Catcher in the Rye. Um, that, that's the novel that sort of came to mind. And I don't know how many of us uh, had to read that story for school in, in one at one time or another um, or who encountered it in our lives. But, it, you know, that that story is very much a coming of age. And it's been a long time since I've read it. Uh, so I don't remember m many of the fine details. Uh, but, you know, in conversations about the novel, in general, you know, there there's sort of this, this underlying feeling of almost nihilism, right? So it's possible for someone to read a story and to get something negative out of it. You know, this, you know, it's not worth it, you know, it's, and so I'm, I'm going to just not do what I, what I want to do or, or not do what drives me. Um, so that, that is a potential consequence of it, but that is also subjective to the person. And I would posit that that person who pulls something negative from stories on a constant basis probably is pulling that negativity in other areas of their life as well. It's, it might be related to the psychology of the person uh, more than the content of the reading material. That reminds me, I've got to, again, to keep generating multiple questions at the same time. Sure. That, but but that, that, uh, that also though reminds me of, um, I think it was an aphorism recently, or maybe it's one from forever ago. You think I would remember, but I write them and then they like fall somewhere in the back of my head mm -hmm. um, for the, i don't know if you've ever read thus spake zarathustra have you read that uh esoteric no novel? i have not uh well it 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 it's a it's a huge endeavor so you may not be missing much but there is a particular really funny line where uh, one of the characters uh points out that zarathustra contradicted himself like from a hundred pages ago and uh, sure. Zarathustra's, Zarathustra's response is great. And as uh, as an author, once you've written a lot, um, you've, you've probably experienced this. He's like, like, what, do I have to carry my ideas around with me in a cask? Like sometimes a, a dove yeah. just flieth away, right? <laughs> and I think that's that's absolutely the case. But uh, this aphorism wrote, uh, I think it was morale taste, like, like morale with an E at the end. But there was an idea I had that... Um, a someone's tastes in anything really but let's confine it to the context of art particularly the context of reading and fiction is interrelated with uh let's say 
a, a type of development of that person's attitude toward the world. Um, and these, I'm not going to delve too far into that because I think it would be a rabbit hole, but uh, I, I think the next couple questions will end up interrelating. We'll see. So uh, I wanted to ask if you thought it was possible. So as we're talking about theme, we're talking about the argument or thesis of a, of a story. Uh, we've talked about the possible reader interpretations. Do you think it's possible that a story, specifically a story with a narrative, I want to make that, uh, that'll become clear to the listeners here in a second why I've, I'm harping that down. But do you think it's possible that a story has no theme? Is it possible that I think a story has no theme? Like, yeah, um, you could write one without one. I think I think if you had asked me that a decade ago, I would have said yes, uh, because, uh, you know, writers have different styles. You know, everyone, ha you know, comes from a, a different place. The The beginning writer is going to write differently than the, the very advanced writer. And so I, I think, you know, in my younger years, I would have said, yes, it is possible to write a story with, with no theme. Uh, but as I, as I get older and I encounter more novels, I, I less and less, I believe that to be true. I believe it is possible for an author to write a story without theme in mind, but I do not believe it's possible for readers to take away nothing from a story that may stick with them. Um, one thing that I sort of come back to as a reader for myself is that it's I don't always remember the fine details of stuff. Um, I, I'm not going to necessarily remember the characters' names. I'm not going to remember the minor details of a plot line. I'm going to remember how a novel made me feel, uh, whether it persuaded me to think about things differently, and what I took away from it. So I'm, I'm definitely a, a thematic reader, uh, uh, probably uh, based on based on that. Um, but I, I don't I don't think it's possible for a story to be completely devoid of themes. Something is going to come into play during the course of the storytelling process. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, actually. Um, and you had mentioned right there at the end as as part of the story process, uh, I've built mm -hmm. an argument around the fact that actually a story itself, is a theme generating human construct essentially right yes like that's that's what a story is um you mentioned catcher in the rye and it seemed kind of seeming i i admittedly have not read it I was supposed to read it in high school but i was uh not a reader then and sure. i uh, found the narrator insufferable um have you, by the way, if you hear a cat, there, my neighbor's cat is trying to come into my apartment. So I apologize for any of you listening. <laughs> uh, but, but no, so I, when I was in graduate school, I went to the University of Tampa for creative writing. I really appreciate all my time there. My professors were great. But I did notice that everyone had a, this kind of will to originality and they're always trying to subvert something. Um, you know, that's kind of popular in our, our postmodern era. Um, but I've seen a lot of authors try to subvert plot and to subvert theme. Um, now, Fallon, if you had a client and they came to you and they said, I'm going to try and subvert plot or subvert theme, um, 
what would you tell them and what would you think would be the result if they tried to do that? I think it would make for a messy read, um, quite honestly. There's something about, you know, we, we talked about the storytelling process, the sort of the oral tradition of the hired wiring that humans have towards storytelling. And, and one of the things that people look for in stories is theme, whether they know it or not. It's just part of sort of the clue finding mission as you go through a story as a reader. Um, when you know and i've heard i've heard authors say this not not so much about plot or theme but about structure oh i don't want to use a structure for my novel because i want my novel to be original okay but if you use no structure your story is not going to make sense right if you answer if you ask a question at the beginning of the novel you have to answer it by the end of the novel i mean hard stop otherwise readers are going to get totally lost they're not going to understand what they just read why it's important and why it's relevant to them so there are little things that we have to do to keep readers engaged and to to get them all the way from that opening chapter to the big finale to get them sort of that that final conclusion. Um, so, you know, subverting theme or subverting plot, you know, you I guess you are, arguably there are some pretty plotless stories right to the lighthouse comes to mind. Um, and if you've, if you've never read to the lighthouse, the major plot is a, a, a bunch of family members who say that they want to go to a lighthouse and they spend an entire Saturday making plans to get to the lighthouse. It's just, it's, it's a, it's a non-plot plot, right? But it's all about character development. It's a literary fiction. So the story isn't really about how they get to the lighthouse. It's about all of the other stuff they're dealing with on a day when they need to be there. Um, so it's just, you know, even, even that kind of story that has almost no plot still has a basic plot. It's something for the characters to do. And the, the plot in that situation also interacts with the primary protagonist's goal, right? If the goal is to get to the lighthouse, the plot is going to surround that. Um, so it's, I, I think it's, it's interesting to hear authors say that they want to subvert one thing or the other, or they want to, you know, they're sort of rugged originalist, and I don't want my story to look like anything else. And I would say that is not possible. Um, stories follow a specific pattern and a specific structure for a reason, is what humans understand as we digest just information. Um, rather than focusing on originality, which, you know, at this point with all of the topics and all of the stories and all of the worlds that people have created is really, really difficult to do to have something that's so fresh that no one's ever seen it before. Instead, I focus on, you know, talking with authors about what uniqueness they want to infuse into that story and help them enhance that part of it. Um, so that, you know, while the story itself may not be totally original, um, the, the way that they communicate that story and the way that they talk about that theme and their message to their readers is what becomes the original element of the story. Yeah, it's the unique emergent property between the uh, the author, the text, the text, and the reader that brings right. something new out, rather than it being just pure originality there, pure novelty. Um, yeah. So whenever I've seen people try to subvert Plotter, I, I have the same essential reaction. Right? It's like the someone has failed to realize that a story is the structure. Right. Like um, mm -hmm. we could uh, I think this is Aristotle as well. You know, a thing is, you know, it's 
it's many things that come together. You'd say it's its mover, so where it comes from, its form and its substance, as well as its telos, its function or its purpose. Um, Mm. And to try and strip out the form, you know, that'd be like, well, I want to plant and grow a tree, but I don't want it to have the form of a tree. And then I would start to ask this person, like, what are you saying then? Yes. Uh, (laughs) uh, Right? (laughs) Right. Um, and, and, and furthermore, I think the result ends up being and ends up having a theme, right? Like, so if you try to, I, I've made this argument many times, and I think it's worth making again, particularly on this particular episode of the podcast, uh, is that if you try to subvert theme, or if you try to not have a theme, one of two things will happen. Uh, either one, a theme will get in there because it's a product of the structure that is what a story is. Because so if you're writing a story, it has a structure because otherwise it isn't a story. And then therefore it has a theme, whether you want it to or not. Or if you're successful enough, what happens is it becomes one particular theme um, that I think readers almost universally hate, which is nothing matters. And that's what you, you know, you've referred to it very kindly as a messy read Um, and, and and that's true. It is, it is messy when that happens. But I think it's, uh, I would argue, worse than messy. And the reason why is because it's a story that insults the reader by wasting their time with a message that nothing, including this book that you're reading, matters. So why should you care? Right? Uh, I think that's the real danger there when someone is trying to subvert, um, subvert theme. Now... Oh, go ahead. Do you have something to say? Oh, yeah. I was going to say that that sort of pairs with you know why does the reader care then? You know, if 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 there's if you're if you're doing all of the subversion and you're trying not to tell a story while telling a story, then the reader is going to be confused. Um, you know, messy is the word I chose, but I th- I think it, it is something beyond messy. It's sort of catastrophic. Um, <laughs> and then readers aren't going to get it. There there's there's no reason for them to stay and engage with a story that isn't a story. Um, yeah, it, it's it's such an interesting thing to think about. So this is a this is a question I wanted I've been wanting to ask for a while. I think now is the right time to ask it. So we talked a lot about um, author intention for a theme being put there. We've talked about the fact that the theme can get put there uh, regardless of whether the author intended, um, and that brings about questions of whether or not themes ought to be determined beforehand. Um, as opposed, right, because you have to ask compared to what. So the author could go in with a theme in mind, uh, or should an author discover the theme um, through a particular method? I'll, I'll outline it shortly, hopefully within a sentence or two. Um, because I, I, the reason why I ask this question is I posit that the let's say that originality that you mentioned before that emerges from the author, the text and the reader together is actually the product of the conflict being a conflict that the author didn't already know how to solve, solved or or came up at least with one genuine try of a solution during the uh, writing revision of the text that then the reader shares in that experience with in the same way that the author learns something through the development of the story and then the reader experiences that secondhand. That would be 
that's kind of the uh, the wild isle literature recommendation for theme as opposed to coming in with a theme fully packaged and function and you know fully finished yeah. in mind before the before the writing be begins do you do you find that you can come in with a theme in mind beforehand or uh is it is it dangerous to not have a theme for fully formed like I've just described coming in? No, no, not at all. Um, it, it, I would say it's not dangerous to come into manuscript revisions without a theme in mind. Um, I think you know, sort of the development of theme is a multi step process in many cases, and generally, you know, the writer, the author, is going to they're going to think about the story idea on some level. You know, why is this in, this story important for me to write? Why am I interested in telling this tale? Um, why am I you know interested in this? What's concerning my main character? Why does it concern me? Um, and, you know, through that process, the, you know, when, when the writer sort of brings that story to into the developmental revision space, then it becomes not not so much a sort uh, you know a, a per, like the purpose of enhancing it's more unearthing so yes the character is going through this they're doing these things with the plot um but what themes emerge through the process of revision um in in that case it's you know it's the the theme is something that that generally is going to come out it's going to be evoked from within the text it's usually not something that's imposed on the story and if if a writer tries too hard to impose that theme on the story readers often will pick it out and they'll see it looks forced you know it's, it's sort of uh, you know squashing a a square peg in a round hole. It doesn't always work. But when you when you look at what's on the page, when you look at the plot, when you look at the characterization, when you look at what's happening, when you look at the bait that you know the big ideas behind the story, what why the author was interested in writing that story in the first place, tendrils of theme begin to emerge. And you know I think especially in the developmental editing space, whether you are an author developing your own stories or whether you're an editor working to help authors develop their stories. It's really sort of stepping back from the story and finding those threads of theme in the pages. Okay, now, you know, as I'm going through this revision process, now I can see the themes emerge. Now I can see sort of what what the meaning is behind the story bigger than what, you know, the writer may have initially imagined. Um, so I, I think it, you know, it's, it's okay to come in with an idea of what you want that story to say, but know that in the writing process, in the craft of storytelling, the theme itself or the big message may change uh, necessarily depending on the outcomes of the work absolutely right um I, I really liked how you worded that so inevitably you got an idea otherwise you wouldn't be writing the story but you started out right. saying at the author asking him herself why am i interested what is pulling me in this direction or why is it that i think this is actually the case and then you mentioned an unearthing a discovering a finding uh we could think of it as a developing um, and yeah, it has to be. It absolutely has to be. I don't know how many times, uh, you know, I, I write in a kind of niche space uh, and I interact with other authors in this niche space. And a lot of them are actually very, very talented, um, though I also see quite a lot. Actually, I see this from the mainstream. You see this everywhere. Uh, even Rand, we mentioned before. And I, I, I like Rand. I happen to be uh, one of those like kooky, like and cap libertarian types. Um, so, mm -hmm. like, you know, Anne Rand's great. Uh, Atlas Shrugged. 
um, there are some great things about it. Um, but sometimes it does hit you like over the head. Yes. Like yes. You, you mentioned like cramming like a square peg into a round hole. I imagine someone yes. was like a giant ham, like ham fisted and like they've got these hands <laughs> tied to their hands and they're, they're boxing you into the ground as uh, uh, what's his name? John Gulch gives the, I don't know, 40 page speech um, that no one would give. So yeah, when, when you, when someone doesn't, doesn't engage in that uh, act of discovery, I think what ends up happening is the, the text feels, uh, I use the word moralizing quite a lot. Like if the reader, yeah. uh, I think experiences this where it's almost like the character turns to like the fourth wall on the page as we're just, you know, taking that uh, metaphor away from film and then just starts talking at you, telling you how to feel rather than mm -hmm. naturally evoking the feeling that the, the author could have evoked in him or herself. So that, that natural process of, uh, discovery and rediscovery of the theme. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I do think it really needs to be a discovery. Uh, while we still have some time, I wanted to get a little bit into the technical side of uh, theme because this is actually something uh, I, I offer as part of my services. I think your services inevitably um, have to touch on this as well, mm -hmm. which is, you know, an author comes and they say, I, you know, I've had people, I've had clients tell me this, like, I want to, um, I want to actually write something deep. I don't, I don't want it to just be this, you know, superficial blah. Um, so from the, from the technical side of things, uh, we'll get your approach first. You know, so you have a client that come in and tell you that, um, what do you say to them? That they want to, when a client asks, you know, how, how to make something bigger from the story, you know, how to, how to bestow a greater meaning on their fiction, yes. um, in the process. So one, one thing about sort of the developmental approach, um, you know, for, if you've ever done a developmental edit, I mean, you know, that the first thing you have to do is read the work. You can't sit down and immediately start editing on page one because without understanding the breadth and depth of the story and the characters, you have nothing to develop. Um, it's in the course of that first reading where themes start to emerge. And, and that's something I communicate to authors that, you know, if you if you want to infuse a story with theme, really, you know, I guess you can start writing with a theme in mind. However, it's really in that revision process that you're going to get to that state of uncovering. Um, so I'm going to look for, I'm going to look for certain things in the course of the author's manuscript. I'm going to look at that characterization and look, you know, what, what are there, are there social commentaries in, you know, in this piece of work? Is there something about, you know, judgment, you know, people are doing wrong, uh, to themselves or there's wrongdoing by others. And there's this sort of great feeling of social judgment at play. Um, classic works like the Scarlet Letter, uh, you know, pull that right to the, to the front, but it's in a lot of novels. There's judgment on class. There's judgment on gender. There's judgment on race. There's judgment on, um, you know, country of origin. There's judgment on lifestyle, you know, so all of those things sort of can be deeper themes. So what, what I would look for is, you know, what are the elements that, that speak to me over the course of the manuscript? And then I talk with the author about, okay, here, here's what I see happening 
for uh, emerging themes in the story. Talk to me about what these things mean to you. Did I hit the mark? Did I miss the mark? And do you see, do you foresee something different? And more often than not, authors will tell me, well, you've actually shown me a theme I didn't even intend. Um, and it's because sometimes it really requires stepping back from the work entirely to be able to look at it objectively, to, to pull out the tendrils of theme there. So then it's just a process of talking to the author, okay, so we've, we've landed on the fact that, you know, in this example, that judgment is a theme. So how do we communicate judgment to the readers? Which character is going to you know, sort of epitomize this? Um, which is going to be the good judge? Which is going to be the, you know, sort of the not good judge? You know, and how, how do we sort of pit those characters against each other to really pull that out? So it's, you know, in the course of developmental edits, sort of keeping in mind that it's not just smoothing the language and, um, you know, moving this exposition paragraph into something that's, you know, dialogue specific. It's really not about that at all. It's reimagining or re-envisioning the story as a whole, like looking at the scenes to see, does this scene do what I want it to do? Uh, you know, is there a purpose? Is there a beginning and middle and an end? Am I going to go through this process and come away with, um, you know, with a greater understanding of, of the work? Is every piece of the story needed? Is it, does it appear to be intentional? Um, and does it communicate the story that I want to tell readers? And so we go through the process to, to figure out what is going to be the best way to deliver this to the reader at the end. Um, I'm working with an author now whose story has changed so completely from the first iteration. You know, a manuscript I read at you know near the end of last year is almost nothing like the manuscript I'm reading today, and it's because of the enhancement of theme and the restructuring of scenes and character art to get to that theme that that transformation could reasonably take place. Yeah, what you've done there is you just touched on an aspect of the um, the subtitle for this episode that we haven't got a chance to bring up yet, which I think is meta narrative. And when you mentioned pulling back, looking at the whole of the story in order to be able to see what it's actually conveying, right? So you could, because when you're in the trenches, your head, like you're, an, uh, for those of you who might be uh, potential uh, authors, like you're thinking about writing a book or a story. Um, here's something that happens when you're when you're writing it. You're like you're down in there. You're in a scene or you're in a chapter. You're in a sentence, and it's very difficult to see outside of the scope of of what you're dealing with at that time and moment. You really have to step back uh, far enough to see the whole of the story, right? Like it's like you can't appreciate. Uh, a grand vista if you're down on the ground you have to really go up on the mountain to really be able to see it all and take it all in um now that again uh we, we beg many questions on this show um and it's really like what is it that we're talking about when we're talking about the meta narrative that that grand message that you see from pulling back i'm going to throw uh, a couple ideas out here and you tell me what you think so uh, when I think of this term meta narrative, it's a narrative on top of the narrative, right? But then that, what do we mean on top? Well, we just talked about going up on the mountain to see the, the whole view, right? So it's, uh, when I say on top, that's a metaphor for a, a type of um, abstraction and generality, right? Because when you're seeing a broader view, you're seeing a more general view. Uh, why? Sure. 
why more general though, right? Because you would think, well, shouldn't wouldn't the specific hit harder? Yes, it would, which is why we're telling a story and not writing an essay like we mentioned before. But so what I mean by general is I mean more I'm going to combine two terms that don't really go together. Human universally um, relatable, right? So um, I, I'll pitch this part of the conversation back to you, right? So would, would you say that when you're seeing theme, uh, you're seeing essentially a, a generalized abstract version of the story and that generalized abstract version of the story is what lets... Uh, the, you know, all all the different types of people coming to read the story to relate to it, right? Like the, the theme. Yes. The theme is in in that upper level. I think so. I think the theme is the thing that makes the story universal, right? Um, if we go back to the Atlas Drugged example, since we're both familiar with that piece of work, um, you know, not every reader is going to identify with Dagny Taggart. You know, that's just, she's, she's a very, very different person than I am. You know, I, I certainly don't identify with her. I'm not, um, you know, money is not my end goal in life. Uh, but I think, you know, Aside from the sort of philosophical sort of implant and musing that that Rand did in the course of the novel, the sort of major message behind Atlas Shrugged is that every reader should do what they can to be the best that they can be. Right. So and that that is a big universal message that can speak to anyone at any time. Be the best that you can be. And it doesn't matter if you agree with objectivism, you know, in philosophical terms. It doesn't matter if you're, you know, politically libertarian or, um, you know, sort of an anarcho-capitalist or, or what have you. You know, you can still be the best person that you can be regardless of, you know, your political leanings, your socioeconomic status, you know, what what have you. Um, so it really, themes really do tap into the universality of the human experience and sort of bridge the gap between the reader having a specific experience, which, you know, for fiction novels, most readers are not having the exact same experience as the protagonist or the viewpoint character is having, but they may sort of be able to universally adopt that, that big, that big thesis, that big theme. Yeah, uh, but for Atlas Shrugged in particular, there's a question. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's like uh, a bunch of characters ask it to each other. It's like, um, yes. are you going to take responsibility or, or, or are you going to be responsible? Uh, yes. Meaning responsible for the consequences if something goes wrong, usually is the context. And, it, and yes. yeah, and the character, the heroes always say yes, right? They're always like, yes, I'm the one willing to take responsibility. Um, so there, I guess... Uh, mm -hmm. And Rand and, and JBP can get along in that context. <laughs> yes, right? very uh, much. In that one, perhaps not in, in others. Um, from a technical perspective, you mentioned, you know, readers aren't going to have the specific experiences that are present in the book, but they can still relate because of that meta narrative. Mm -hmm. um, that really leads us to talk about symbols and it leads us to talk about this concept order abstraction that I've taken um, like third hand from like Thomas Aquinas who I think developed that off of Aristotle. Um, 
but I think we should talk about symbols first before I jump into order abstract. Oh, maybe I can talk about them at the same time. So I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna pitch an, uh, my idea for symbols at you, and you tell me how this compares to how you think about symbolism in fiction. So when I think about symbols, um, I actually think about them in a, a more objective form. This is partly because I have uh, a bit of personal study background with uh, Yoon and a little bit with Campbell. Mm -hmm. And there are certain symbols that seem to occur universally among humankind across culture and across time. And I think that those symbols are how we convey the component parts of theme across a narrative. And I think we do this through a process called order abstraction. Now, um, I'm going to make this because this this took me forever to understand. I think I've managed to boil it down into an understandable way. So um, there are th well, there can be depending on how you how you do it. But I typically work with three orders of abstraction: first, second, and third. First being the most specific. Third being the most general. So third being the closest in relation to the theme, first being the closest in relation to the specific narrative elements that the author wrote down on the page. Um, so the first first order is a reference to the specific thing. So if we have a particular character like um, Dagny Taggart, right, uh, to, to use her mm -hmm. as an example, she is a, a, a specific person. Um, it's still an abstraction because we're referring to a person. We have the idea of a specific person. But then we might go into second order, uh, and second order might be um, something like a category that she belongs to, right? So this might be um, the ambitious businesswoman, right? Because that's definitely uh, one of the things that she is. Now, there's going to be multiple categories in which she fits into, but that refer to her as a group of uh, let's say concrete beings. That's second order abstraction. And then third order abstraction is where we've moved beyond the concrete. Now when we describe the the categories above those categories, right, um, we're not referring to concrete. So to use Dagny Taggart, who is the ambitious businesswoman, and we might say um, the third order abstraction of her as a symbol is let's say, uh, one whose telos is, let's say, success and uh, domination in the material space, something like that. Like we're not referring to any particular concrete person at that point, but we've hit such a level of generality that you're going to have many, 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 many people be able to relate to that third order of abstraction where you know, yeah, I've had this experience. In fact, it, it, it's now divorced away from specifically business women to any any one or thing that experiences that drive of uh, you know fulfillment and meaning through. In fact, get it away from even uh, materialism, right? Because you, could, it, it's beyond mm -hmm. that. It's someone who has a drive and purpose for taking responsibility, or perhaps you could say, yeah. third order abstraction symbol for Dagny Taggart is the drive to have a meaningful purposeful existence through the taking of responsibility in one's own hands to be to be the the highest potential self something something as big and broad as that right you, you notice that you get more words as you go up the order so that's how i think of symbol uh, i know that was kind of lengthy it was very dry and academic i apologize for going on so long 
does that relate at all to um, how you approach symbol? Uh, do you have a similar or totally different approach? Um, I'm, I think mine's a little bit different. Um, I look for symbols to, f to figure out sort of what things are coming up over and over, sort of beyond theme, what visual images am I seeing in the course of, of the story? Um, and do these things have a, an accepted sort of general meaning, right? Um, so if there are colors present, you know, do those colors have meaning that people would recognize? Um, you know, is sort of uh, the easy example is, you know, green can mean sort of greed or envy, right? So if if you've got a, a character who is, you know, maybe not, not so good a person who is greedy and selfish, um, the, you know, the writer may enhance that by, Show, depicting that character often wearing green. Um, so it's a, it's a subtle way to infuse that meaning without having to beat your reader over the head with it. Um, there are, I mean, symbols are, you know, there are, there are lots of things that have a set meaning already. So, you know, think of the, like the color black, for example. Black, you know, you think of like little black dress or black tie nights. So, you know, black brings an air of sophistication. There's elegance. There's some level of formality. But black can also be, you know, sort of a color of grief or death. So depending on how that character is operating in the course of the novel and, you know, so what, what they're doing, what the mood is that may that may result in a suggestion to the author to like maybe think about the colors that you're using in this space because this person has gone to this event um and and it's supposed to be you know the sophisticated elegant thing uh but they're wearing yellow which is not at all you know it, it's it's not it sort of it doesn't fit the theme of the night so if if the if the thing that they're wearing is so vastly different from what they're trying to be, it has to have a purpose, right? Maybe that person really is a coward. Maybe that person is using this event to, you know, for dishonest means, you know, trying to get something for themselves out of it. And in that case, the choice of yellow is appropriate, right? Um, so it really comes down to what's already present and how how the author intends the the mood or the meaning and whether that shines through and and sort of often it comes down to intentionality especially with symbols um i think you know symbols are one of those things i think that writers may probably don't come into the story with already you know they they're probably not going to come and be like you know I, I want to write the story and I want red to be a symbol and I'm going to use red intentionally in every single chapter and it's it's going to have a, a sort of this divine purpose um usually that that's not the case usually that that's something that comes out in the revision process as you learn the themes and then learn how to leverage symbols to enhance that theme yeah, I also find that the symbolism, some of the symbolism I'll discover I put there by accident in a first draft, mm -hmm. but mo but there's a ton of it, perhaps at, at least half. Um, I know my experience, it gets there with revision for the reason you described mm -hmm. earlier, because when you're in the trenches, right, you can't, you can't see the big, the big picture, the vista. Uh, so you right. miss a bunch of the opportunities. Do you think that um, with symbols um, that... Obviously, some are culturally and context dependent and others seem to be universal. Uh, do you think that's fair to say or do you, do you think it's 
uh, you know, there's going to be some people who are going to, some listeners perhaps even, who are going to argue all one way or all the other. Uh, or do you think yeah. it's a mixture? I think it can be a mixture. I mean, I, I'm, I'm certainly not an anthropologist, so I, I'm not going to be able to give you a history lesson on on the themes across the world. Um, but I, there, you know, there are some, you know, certain certain symbols that pop out that show up over and over. You know, colors being one, um, uh, appearances of certain things. You know, feathers, bridges, uh, chains, bones, water. All of those things have generally meaning that that people already understand, even if they don't know they understand it. I mean, how many how many music videos have you seen where it's raining? <laughs> You know, and that's yeah. that's intentional, right? People people know that you know the visual of rain is indicative of sadness or grief on some capacity, um, and so there, you know, it's it's an easy way to bring sort of meaning into a space. Um, but in some in some cases, the symbol is really context dependent and may may be specific to the story, and I think that can be especially true in uh, speculative fiction. Um, when the author is creating a world for themselves. So, you know, when you're when you're building a whole new world, you don't necessarily want to rely on the constants of Earth in, in this time and space to build something new, right? Then it just becomes like Earth 2.0. Um, so in, in that space, you know, I think it's okay to sort of explore what those symbols can be, what they mean to the people living there, um, and sort of adopt them into the cultural mindset of the world building at large. Um, you know, so it, it really, I think I think the answer is both, is really context dependent, but there also are some symbols that are universal and that people pick up inherently. Yeah, I mean, I, I would have to agree that it's both... Um... You know, writing speculative fiction myself, uh, I'll do a little bit of research into folklore, and there are some very particular parochial uh, symbols, uh, particularly with like uh, folklore about fairies and such. But then there's other things that are like hyper universal. You mentioned music videos and raining, right? And like, you know, to tie together, because I really think our two approaches to symbols um, and the relationship to theme are are, are spot on. Uh, if I spot, I shouldn't have said spot on. I should say the same. I think we come from a particular, just different backgrounds, probably. Sure. Um, so to to tie in yours with mine, because I think I could do this on the fly. So we've got rain, right? And, you know, rain can be a lot of things. You might have cultural um, context-specific things. Like if you are peoples from a desert, the rain is great. The rain, you're going to hyperfixate on the fact that the rain is a nourishing force mm -hmm. that has come to revitalize um, the barren desert. Um, but at the same time, even those type of people are going to have some associations with the rain and something like tears, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Because rain emulates those things. Uh, it, it, rain is being immersed in water. Uh, water is, uh, because I'm a union, like total union, you know, water is the place underneath which you drown, which you are surrounded, uh, it's the uh, object of the unknown that has no fixed form, right? Um, so you've also got those elements, and those are always going to be present, right? Even, uh, even if you are one of, let's say, the I don't know, you're on Dune, you're you're one of the the um, the Freeman. Um, there is mm -hmm. there is something too rain that's going to be associated with crying because crying even even to them crying is like shedding water this great sacrifice right it, 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 to, yes. it, to express grief um so yeah absolutely you can play and that dune i didn't even mean to do that but dune is a great example of, of how you can 
play with um, how symbols operate. Um, all right, we're we're running out of time. Um, I think to to wrap this up, um, why don't we throw out for our listeners? We, we've done a few examples already, um, but is there a particular um, story, a particular book? at which the theme really, really impressed itself upon you uh, that you might recommend to uh, a potential uh, author to, or just reader to read, uh, particularly for the theme? So that's, that's a great question. Um, I'm going to say no, um, because reading is a personal experience for everybody. And the, the novels that I love may not be the novels that someone else does. But I would encourage folks to go back and read some of those books that they maybe had to read in school and didn't understand why and reread them with theme and symbolism in mind and see what comes out of the rereading experience. Um, there's something, uh, I'll, I'll give an example uh, from my own life. Um, I am a huge fan of The Great Gatsby and I know it's tired and boring and everybody loves The Great Gatsby and whatever, um, but it's a horrible story. <laughs> you know, these are terrible characters. They're selfish. Um, they're entitled. Uh, they're basically adult brats. And you don't necessarily pick that up in The Great Gatsby when you read it in school, right? It's about prosperity and it's about wealth and it's about achievement and it's about all this stuff. But when you reread it as an adult and you look at some of the, the things that come out in the story, you see the, sort of the sadness in, in prosperity and what that actually means for Jay Gatsby, who is who can't live an authentic life, who can't actually answer the question directly when asked what he does for work. There is a lot of mystery there. There's secrecy there. Um, he's, he's sort of hiding his authentic self in pursuit of money. So there's there's a lot of stuff baked in that, you know, maybe stands to, you know, to be gleaned from a second reading of some of those classics. So that that's probably the biggest suggestion I can give is read a story you already know, but read it through a different lens and see if you find something different in a second reading. I'm going to jump on, on on that and second second that to read the classics. Um, I'll take a little bit of a different angle on it. I do agree though, but that you know, there's just tons of stuff that the first time I had mm -hmm. read that I didn't understand at all. Particularly when we're made to read these things as young people, often in mm -hmm. you know high school with teachers. I don't know, but if you're how your um, school experience was, but mine was um, particularly in public school was was uh, miserable. Um, the teachers were not really, they could not participate and actually have the conversation that we had here today. I'll say it that way. Um, and so when I started teaching uh, and I started you know, reading through the textbooks I was supposed to teach from at a university level, um, what I found was that the, the, particularly in regard to theme, um, the, the interpretations were a little bit lazy and atrocious. And by a little mm -hmm. bit, I mean like, really lazy and atrocious um you know this whole conversation we talked about how theme is really the thesis uh you use the word motif and if, if that's the word that uh our listener might happen to use i think that's fine because the, like i said before it's beginning as theme and motif get used interchangeably across academia mm -hmm. uh frustratingly so but uh sticking with the word theme just for the sake of it you know uh, if if you're taught that a theme is a thing it very well may not be uh oh and here's what i want to say theme as thesis right um 
you're oftentimes in school taught, let's say, the, the theme as being um, a singular word. Uh, and one of the things I learned teaching composition in particular was trying to impress upon uh, my students and, oh, you listeners, please have this impressed upon you. A thesis is like a fully articulated argument. It's a claim that a thing is true. If X plus Y, then Z, something like Obviously, it's more complicated than that, but but something like that, right? There, there's some there's something being claimed that's true about some human universal that we talked about is how the reader connects with the text and back to the author if they're all on the same page. Um, and I would say for a lot of people, like for me, um, Shakespeare's plays, uh, particularly Romeo and Juliet. Why Romeo and Juliet? Because one, I think that one's the easiest to enjoy as a young person. So I'm going to, I'm going to say, go back, go back, uh, either watch or you can watch that, uh, really goofy rendition of it. Uh, it's like Romeo plus Juliet with like Leonardo DiCaprio, if you want. Um, or you can, you could read that, read the stage play. Um, but but go back and say, okay, this is a tragedy. It ended in misery, uh, similar to the the Great Gatsby. Um, and the question is, why? Like you, 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 you said before, right? As an author, you're asking, why is it that I'm drawn to this? Why is it that this concludes mm -hmm. this way? Um, and I would say to a lot of people, don't just take what a textbook gives you or what your professor tells you. Um, Go in and ask that question for yourself, and you're going to get a lot more out of the text than um, if you had just taken for granted the answers already available. All right, um, Fallon, before we go, uh, I'm going to do a little outro here. So for you listeners, thank you so much for listening through this whole podcast. I had a lot of fun. Uh, before you go, uh, consider checking out my other content. Like I said, I've got a bunch of other podcasts. You can find those on uh, any of your podcast listening apps or on my website, wildislelit.com. I have the Wild Isle Style Guide, uh, particularly focusing on the style of prose that you're writing in. So if you've got a manuscript and you're trying to develop yourself as an author and you want to stand out and reach the fullest you know, get the content of your work to reach its fullest potential in terms of composition. Go check me out there and check out my novel, Want Smoke Broken. And I've got a blog and all kind of other things. Um, and don't miss out on uh, Fallon's work as well. Fallon, uh, go ahead and let them know again where they can uh, check out your work and, and where you offer your services. Yes. Uh, thank you, Marquise. Uh, so again, my website is fallonedits.com. I'm also on LinkedIn as Fallon Edits and on Minds for the Freedom sort of open source community as It's Me Fall. Um, so you're welcome to to come into all of those spaces, um, you know. And I'm happy to you know even even for folks who who can't work with me directly or who are not uh, ready to work with me directly, I'm happy to answer questions to jumpstart the writing process, to jumpstart the self editing process, and really am here to try to help authors to the extent of my abilities. All right. Well, thank you very much, Fallon. Check out her stuff, everybody. Um, thank you for listening in, and we'll see you all next time.